If you have your Bible, if you would, turn to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. We'll look at the entire psalm this morning. Psalm 146 is the first of five hallelujah psalms that conclude the Psalter. Uh, Psalms 146 through 150 are called the Hallel or hallelujah psalms because they begin and end with the Hebrew word hallelujah, which is translated praise the Lord in your Bible. Hallelujah is one of those words uh, that, that transcends cultures. It's understood in almost any language. I once heard a preacher say that there are three words that are universal, amen, hallelujah, and Coca-Cola. And I think there's some truth to that. You can find a Coke anywhere you go in the world just about. So praise God for that. But, but hallelujah is used uh, throughout the world by Christians who want to ascribe praise to God. And the hallelujah psalms provide a fitting end to the Psalter. Especially for those of us who don't like sad endings, I don't like sad endings. So if a movie or a book has a sad ending, I refuse to watch that movie or read that book. If the hero dies or the bad guys win or the the main point of conflict is not resolved, I have no interest in watching it or reading it. My philosophy is that there's enough sadness and sorrow in the world uh, for me to deal with on a regular basis that I don't need to consume depressing things for entertainment value. And for that reason, I love the conclusion of the Psalter. It ends on a high note. Now, if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll you'll notice that that all of the Psalms do not have a a beautiful and high... Re, um, uh, presentation of what man is going through. And so what I mean by that is that the righteous suffer, the wicked sometimes prosper, the godly ask questions, they doubt, they struggle, they face opposition, sometimes they sin. And yet in the midst of all of this difficulty and in the midst of all of the trials and the struggles, God remains faithful. And so the Psalter concludes by drawing our attention to an always faithful, never failing God. And so I want to read Psalm 146 for us this morning. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for this psalm that draws our attention to you, that helps us focus on you. I pray that this morning that we would be challenged to see you as you are. We would see your goodness and your godness, and we would worship you and we would trust you. We thank you for Jesus, for his love for us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. As I was reading this psalm, I'm sure you noticed the God-centered nature of this psalm. 
God is referred to 15 times in this psalm. Thir- uh, 11 times he's referred to as the Lord. Four times he's referred to as God or my God. And so this passage again is drawing our attention, lifting our heads, fixing our eyes on God. And I think the psalmist does this for two reasons. One, to call us to praise this God that we're looking at. And two, to call us to trust this God that we're looking at. So first of all, the psalmist teaches us that we should resolve to praise God. Look again at verses one and two. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Notice Lord in verse one, Lord in verse one, Lord in verse two, my God in verse two. God is the object of worship in this psalm. And that's an important truth for us to remember that you and I were created, were called to worship God. God and God alone is worthy of worship and praise and all of creation is called to exalt this God. And this is not an optional activity Praise in verse one is an imperative. It's a command. You and I are commanded to worship God. So it's not a a gentle reminder or a kind suggestion. You and I are commanded to worship God. We're called to lift up our voices and declare our love and our gratitude and our wonder at the God who loves us, the God who redeems us, the God who sustains us. And so we lift up our voices and we praise this God. We offer all of ourselves to this God. And the psalmist calls to the people of God and says, lift up your voices and praise the Lord. But one of the things that I love about this passage is that the psalmist does not simply instruct other people to worship God. He invites himself to worship God. He says, praise the Lord, declaration, corporate worship. But then he says, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He internalizes this. He makes it personal. And ultimately, worship is personal. The psalmist is having a conversation with himself. I I don't know if anyone in here talks to themselves. My dad used to say that he would only talk to himself when he wanted to have an intelligent conversation, which is a questionable statement. But but as a dad, I can appreciate the dad joke. But the psalmist is talking to himself, and he tells himself, soul, praise the Lord. And I think that's good and right for the psalmist to do. And I think it's good and right for you and I as Christians to do, especially those of you who who preach or teach in a class or lead a ministry. Before you call someone else to worship God, to love God, and to serve God, you should engage in the task of worship, devoting all of your life and all of your love to God yourself. Spurgeon said of this passage, "It's it's an evil thing to say, Praise ye, and not to add, praise ye, O my soul. Ultimate act of hypocrisy is to call others to worship and love God while we fail to do so ourselves. And so the psalmist says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And he goes on to say, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God, sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so here's the psalmist calling others to praise God, calling his own soul to praise God. And and I'll say this, it's important to note that praise is an activity of the soul. It's not just something that we do externally. He doesn't say, praise the Lord, oh my lips, or praise the Lord, oh my hands. He says, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So praise doesn't involve less than lifting our voices and worshiping God, but I would certainly argue it involves more. Worship comes from the soul 
is we think about who God is and we think about what God has done, our heart should be filled with joy, with gratitude, with love, and out of, out of our soul, out of a deep sense of satisfaction in God, come words, come thoughts, come actions that reflect our love for this God who's redeemed us, who saves us, and who sustains us. And so the psalmist here thinks about God and he says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And then he makes a commitment. He says, I'm going to do this. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God as long as I have my being. And so I'm reminded here that praise is an, is an action, that it requires an act of the will, that it's something that you and I, we resolve, we decide to do, we determine to lift up our voices and to live our lives in such a way to bring glory to God. And oftentimes in contemporary worship, Christians are tempted to only worship when they feel like it, based on whether they like the song, what their week went like, what kind of emotional state they're in. And yet the psalmist here resolves to praise God his entire life. And essentially what he's saying is, doesn't matter what I go through. Doesn't matter what I'm facing. Doesn't matter what I feel like. And you and I should have that same type of determination. Because we don't worship based on how we feel. We worship based on who God is and what God has done. And God is God and God is good no matter what you and I feel like. And so we resolve to worship him. The psalmist says, I'm going to worship him. And he says, I'm going to do so as long as I live, as long as there's breath in my lungs. Man, no, no, matter, no matter the circumstances, no matter my, my current state, I am going to worship God. This resolve to worship God no matter what we face. And I, I'm challenged by this. I'm encouraged by this. I want to have this same type of determination that I will worship God. I'll lift up my voice. I will sing his praises as long as I'm alive and as long as there's breath in my lungs. And here's the beautiful reality, Christian, that even when you die and your breath leaves your body, you will still worship God. The Puritan John Janaway called those in the room around him when he was on his deathbed and he said this to them. As he's dying, he says, come, let us lift up our voices in praises of the most high. I will sing with you as long as my breath doth last. And when I have none, I shall do it better. Mm. Not even death can stop us from praising God. In life, in death, we will worship our creator. And so the psalmist resolves to worship God calls our attention to God and says, praise the Lord. And the question for us to ask after reading these two verses is, does this reflect the reality of our life? Do you and I worship? When we attend church every Sunday and gather on the Lord's day, do we worship? Do we worship when we sing those songs or do we go through the motions? Do we worship when the word is preached or do we sit there distracted? Do we worship when we're doing our devotions and praying to God? Do we worship as we work the job that God has given us with the health that he's given us? Does all of our life reflect the goodness of God and our desire to live for him? Praise the Lord. So we resolve to praise the Lord. And the psalmist is going to go on to call us not just to praise the Lord, but to put our hope in the Lord, to trust the Lord at the end of this psalm. But before he does that, he takes a detour. Look at verses three and four. Put not your trust in princes, verse three, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. 
When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So we're told to praise God. We resolve to praise God, but we should also resolve not to trust in man. So the psalmist is saying here, don't trust in man. These verses essentially function as a warning. It's like the warning label on products that you buy. I don't know if you read those. Those are important for you. They warn you of danger. So, so if you're allergic, you, you pick up a bag of, of, of peanuts. Some of them are silly. So you pick up a bag of peanuts and it says, caution may contain nuts. And it's like, well, yes, it's a bag of peanuts. Or, or uh, sleeping pills. Uh, it says, caution may cause drowsiness. And you're like, well, of course, that's why I bought them. I hope they cause drowsiness. Or if you read the chainsaw manual, there's usually somewhere in there uh, a warning that says, caution, do not attempt to stop the chain with your hand. And if you need that warning, you should not be operating a chainsaw. But it's a good warning. Hey, don't do this. This could lead to harm. This could lead to injury. And what the psalmist is saying is, hey, don't put your trust in man. That will lead to ruin. That will lead to injury. There's no, he goes on to say, there's no salvation in them. There's no help in them. Why would you trust in man? So there's a warning. Praise God, but don't put your trust in man. And if you read through the psalm, you may be tempted to view this as a distraction from what the psalmist is saying. He talks about praising God. There's a focus on God. Then he talks about finding help in God and hope in God. And so again, there's a Godward focus. But why this focus on man in three and four? This is in this passage because God knows that you and I are tempted to look to other things and other people for help and for hope other than God. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our sin. He knows our tendencies. And here he's warning us against trusting in man. And so he starts out by saying, don't don't trust in princes, those who are rich, those who are powerful, the sons of kings, those who are influential. He says they may have wealth, they may have power, they may have possessions, but ultimately they cannot save you. And so we're, we're warned against trusting in people of position and power and prestige. And you may think, as you're reading this, you may think even as I'm preaching, I don't really need this, this warning. I'm not, I'm not prone to trusting in powerful figures. This isn't a temptation of mine. But I would caution you against that mindset. All of us, if we're not careful, can find ourselves trusting ultimately in things that cannot save us or sustain us. Maybe even good things, maybe even good people, maybe even helpful people. And we think, okay, well, this president or this politician can help provide national security. Or or we think this CEO or president or this manager can help provide job stability. Or this financial advisor or financial planner can provide financial stability. Or this spouse or this parent or this child can fill this relational need that I have. And we're tempted to look, and many of those things are good things. You have access or resources. This medical professional can help me with this physical condition. Those are good things. And yet, ultimately, God sustains all things. God puts the breath in their lungs and keeps their heart beating. And ultimately, God is a source of hope and salvation. And if we receive health, and help from a doctor is because God sustains them and guides their hand. If we receive financial advice from a planner, it's because God has given them wisdom and given them health and guides them and governs them. 
Ultimately, all things come from God and ultimately salvation only comes from God. And while this is true of those physical things that I mentioned, it's much more true in a spiritual sense because only God saves. Man can't forgive sins. Man can't provide joy. Only God saves and sustains and provides joy. And so we're told not to trust in man. In a sermon on this particular psalm, the Puritan John King listed five reasons from this text why you and I should not trust in man. First, he says we don't trust in man because the psalmist says don't trust princes, but he also says don't trust any son of man. Now, why? Number one, he says they're men. They're by birth men. And so we don't trust in any man for salvation or deliverance because they're just like us. They're men. They're sinners. They have problems. They have needs. Why would we look to those for help who they themselves need help? We don't put our trust in men. Number two, he says they're weak men, and in such is no help. And so the passage says there's no salvation in them. Why would you and I look to man for help and for hope and for salvation when there is no salvation in them? And this is particularly true, again, as it relates to our greatest need. Man cannot save us. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And there's nothing that any other man can do for you besides Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. Only Jesus, only the God-man can reconcile us to God. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he makes salvation possible. But if we look for salvation anywhere else other than Jesus, we're bound to be frustrated. He says there's no help in them. They're men, they're weak men. Number three says they're dying men. Their breath goes out. King says that, that man is immortal, that every man, no matter how powerful, no matter how impressive, no matter how influential, ultimately they're going to die. Ultimately their breath is going to go out. And if you continue reading the psalm, this description of man stands in stark contrast to God who reigns forever. For all generations, God reigns, and yet every man dies, goes to the ground, and ultimately dissolves, which is the fourth thing that he says. They're, they're corruptible men. Their bodies dissolve. They, they go in the ground, and they rot. Man dies. He's buried. He's put in the ground. Sidney Gradena says, the earthlings return to the earth. And then number five, he says, they're, they're transitory men. Their thoughts, King says, are as transitory as their bodies. The passage says in verse four, on that very day, his plans perish. The body and all the plans along with it go in the ground. And so the psalmist says, why would you put your hope? Why would you put your trust in man? They're men. They're weak. There's, there's no help in them. They die. Their breath goes out. They're buried. They're corruptible. Their bodies go in the ground. And he says, number five, their plans perish. All their strategies, their plans, those things die along with them. Don't put your hope in man. No person, Christian, should be trusted for salvation, for hope, for help apart from God. No one else can reconcile you to God. No one else can forgive your sins. No one else can bring you peace. No one else can provide joy apart from God himself. There, there's no salvation in them. The, the, the death of William the Conqueror, I think, illustrates the truth of this 
passage in a particularly profound way. William the Conqueror defeated King Harold at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and he profoundly changed the course of British history. Yet when he died in 1087, his his biographer, Ordericus Vitalis, moralized his death using the language of this psalm. So so William the Conqueror uh, invaded France. Uh, Philip had, had taken land in Normandy that he believed William believed belonged to him, so he invades France, begins to wage war on King Philip, and, and things are going his way. He's on, on the, the cusp of complete victory when the horse that he's riding on trips and stumbles, and it throws William into the iron pommel, and it, it delivers a fatal blow, a fatal injury. And so they carry him to the Abbey of St. Gervais near Rowan, and on the morning of September 9th, he dies. And when William the Conqueror dies, his nobles get on their horses and they go back to secure their possessions. His servants take off his fancy clothes, they steal his jewelry, and they leave the naked body of the conqueror of England laying on the cold, bare floor. And the biographer looks at this and he writes, put not your trust in princes, which are nothing, O you sons of men. And so if we don't trust princes, and we shouldn't, this passage teaches us, where should we look? For help? Where should we look for hope? And the psalmist tells us in verse 5 Blessed is he whose help is a God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So the the psalm makes clear we, we can't trust man, but he redirects our gaze, praise God, don't trust men, look to God for help and for hope. And so the one who looks to God for help and for hope, the psalmist says, is the one who's who's blessed. And again, we want to be careful that we don't inject material prosperity or physical well-being into this. We're Christians, not charlatans who peddle prosperity theology. And that's especially true as we read the book of Psalms. As one commentator noted, he said, the whole sweep of the Psalter makes clear that happiness is not the absence of pain and trouble, but the presence of a God who cares about human hearts and who acts on behalf of the afflicted and the oppressed. And so the blessed one is is not the one who lives a a life free of pain or suffering or trials. The blessed man is the one who recognizes God's care and God's presence, who delights in God's law, who walks in God's way. This is the blessed man regardless of external circumstances. And he says, blessed is the man whose help is the God of Jacob. So it calls to mind Genesis, the patriarch Jacob, and God's faithfulness to him. And as you think about this, man, this is a demonstration of the grace of God. You remember Jacob is a deceiver. He he tricks his brother out of his birthright and out of his blessing. He has to run from his brother Esau. And yet while he's running away from Esau, God shows up in Genesis 28 and says this, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised." Man, what grace for God to make these promises to the trickster Jacob, and not only to make these promises, but to keep these promises. God prospers Jacob when he's working for Laban. 
God brings him back into the land to to confront Esau with 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of his sons, Joseph, will deliver his brothers and his father, Jacob, from famine. From the tribe of Judah comes a young virgin who gives birth to a son whose name is Jesus, who dies and rises to save his people from their sin. And through Jesus, all the families of the earth are blessed. The God of Jacob is meant to remind us, that title is meant to remind us of the grace of God and the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. This is a God that we look to. This is a God who provides help. This is a God to whom we tr- in whom we trust and to whom we look for help and hope. And so he says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That, that term hope, it's not used the way we often use hope today. I don't know if you use that term or not, but usually when I hear it, people use it in a way that indicates that they hope something will happen, but they're not sure that it will. Now, I hope I get a raise. I hope I can go on that vacation. I hope my wife doesn't make meatloaf for dinner. We hope these things are true. That's not the way the Bible uses the phrase hope. Hope is a settled confidence in God's character and God's faithfulness, realizing that God will keep his promises. And so we hope in him. We trust in him. And the rest of this psalm demonstrates various reasons that you and I, verses 6 through 10, various reasons that you and I should trust God, that we should put our hope in him. I think if God were to write a resume some of you will graduate soon. You'll, you'll, you'll type out a resume and, and you'll, you'll put your experience and, and your education. And then usually there's this list of things that, that a person puts that they think they're good at. Got these skills or these talents. And, and we put things that honestly, you and I are just, our resume is not that impressive. We're not that impressive. You know, I, I always staple at a 45 degree angle or I can hold 17 eggs in one hand or whatever it is that we're proud of, right? I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself. I can do this thing. We're, we're just not that impressive. But God this passage reminds us, created all things and sustains all things and cares for all people, and we can put our hope in him. Five things quickly here. Number one, we're told that we can trust God because he creates all things. God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. What a staggering reality that God made all things. Nothing that's in existence is there other than the fact that God made it. He says, God made the heavens, everything that's out there and up there, God made. And he made the earth, everything that's down here. He made the sea vast and expansive and everything in it, every little tiny detail. God made all things. This God who creates is a God who can be trusted. Find help in him, put your hope in him. Number two, God is faithful. It says in verse number six, he keeps faith forever. God keeps his promises. He can be trusted. He never lies. He never changes. He's always the same. You and I can trust God because he's faithful to keep his promises. Number three, he, def- he defends the weak and the vulnerable. Don't have time to work through all of these individually. It says that he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. We could take them individually, but they're all communicating essentially the same truth. And that's God's care and compassion for the weak, for the lowly, for the outcast, for the downtrodden. God cares for them. 
He provides for them. He sees them, he knows them, he loves them, and he cares for them. We're also told, though, in verse number nine, that the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This is a reminder that God judges sin. Why why do we trust God? Because, Because he made all things, because he keeps his promises, because he provides for his people, because he judges the wicked. Right, the psalmist said, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God is just and God punishes sin. From Genesis three, where God judges Adam and Eve to Revelation 20, where those who are wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, we're reminded that God judges sin. And we should see those warnings in scripture as acts of grace, where God is showing us the danger of sin and calling us to turn from sin, turn from the way of the wicked and to pursue righteousness, which is found in Christ. And then number five, he reigns forever. The psalmist says, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. God is sovereign. God reigns over all things. And this reign will never end. It will go on and on. And again, this stands in contrast to man who dies, who goes to the dirt. His body dissolves and his plans perish, but God reigns forever. And so we can trust this God. We can put our hope in this God. God creates, God keeps his promises, God provides for his people, God punishes the wicked, and God reigns forever. Now, here's what's beautiful about these five things, that we see them clearly in this text, but we see them even more pointedly in the New Testament as Jesus, the Son of God, comes and promises to do and does all these things. Jesus created all things. John tells us in John 1, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that exists, exists through the word of God. Jesus Christ created all things. Jesus Christ keeps his promises. He promised his disciples that he was going to die and rise on the third day and he kept that promise. He promised his disciples he would send his spirit when he left. When he ascended and he sent his spirit, he kept that promise. He promised that he'll return for his people and he will keep that promise. Jesus keeps his promises. He judges, he judges, he provides. Man, when you think about Jesus providing for his people, man, does Jesus not provide for the lowly, for the outcast? Remember in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist is in prison and he's doubting, And he he sins and he asks Jesus, are you the one that's to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus tells him, he says, tells this messenger, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Here's Jesus providing for the oppressed and the hungry, setting the captive free, raising up those who are bowed down. Jesus does all of these things. Think about Jesus' ministry, executing justice for the oppressed, the way he reaches out and touches unclean lepers, the way he welcomes children, those who are on the margins of society to himself. Jesus executes justice for the oppressed. Jesus feeds the hungry. We think of him taking five loaves and two fish and feeding thousands of people, but spiritually he says, I'm the bread of life, feast on me. Jesus sets the prisoner free. Jesus said, if a man commits sin, he's a slave to sin, but whom the son sets free is free indeed. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. He does that 
Physically, he performs miracles, but he also helps those who are blind in sin see the, the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. He says, come to me, all you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He watches over the sojourners. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that those of us who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says that he upholds the widow and the fatherless. Jesus has redeemed his bride and he's made you and I sons and daughters of the king. He is worthy of praise and worship. He provides for his people. Jesus will judge the wicked. Paul refers to Jesus as the one who is to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus will reign forever. He's the descendant of David, whose throne has been established forever. His kingdom will never end. And we look to him and we submit to his rule and his reign in our lives now and for all eternity. Jesus, the son of God, does all these things and he does them well. And you and I can look to him for help. We can look to him for hope because he provides salvation. And the Psalm closes by saying, praise the Lord. This is the God that we're called to look to for help and the God that we're called to put our hope in. Psalm 146 helps us take our eyes off man, both others and ourselves, and help fix our eyes on God in whom there is help and in whom we can hope. As a, as a hymn writer wrote, hallelujah, praise Jehovah, O my soul, Jehovah praise. I will sing the glorious praises of my God through all my days. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Happy is the man that chooses Israel's God to be his aid. He is blessed whose hope of blessing on the Lord his God has stayed. Heaven and earth the Lord created, seas and all that they contain. He delivers from oppression, righteousness he will maintain. God, we thank you this morning for this psalm and a reminder that you and you alone are worthy of worship and of praise, that you and you alone can be trusted. And we recognize, God, that we're tempted to look to other things for meaning, for purpose, for value, for joy, for rescue. And we're reminded of the folly of these things. They're, they're foolish. And so help us, God, to worship you. Help us to trust you. Help us to live our lives in such a way that our words, that our actions, that our thoughts and our desires reflect the fact that we love you, that we praise you, and that our hope is in you. We thank you for Jesus who came and lived a perfect and sinless life, who died on the cross for our sins and came back to life so that we could have eternal life who's ascended to the Father, who's interceding for us right now, and who's promised to come back for us. We know he's faithful. We know he keeps these promises, and we love him. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.